0: This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming again. This is episode 140. In this episode, you'll be learning a little bit more about your host. That's me. Recently, I went to the large podcasting conference of the year, and they encouraged us to do an episode about ourselves to try to connect a bit more with our audiences. Recently, I went on the Ultra Running Guys podcast with Jeremy Reynolds and Jeff Winchester. This will be a slimmed down version of their interview with me. Their excellent podcast has also been doing a series interviewing race directors of some of the classic ultras. Now for my interview with them.
1: Let's get right in. I am super excited for tonight. Our guest tonight is one of the most fascinating people we've ever had the pleasure to talk with. So as a runner, he has over 150 ultras under his belt, and he was the 15th person to complete 100 100 milers. So this guy has spent some time on the trails. A few. Yeah, just a few. But his running is just the tip of the iceberg. So listen close. He's also the director of the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame, which I'll be honest, until just recently, I didn't know existed. He's the race director of the Pony Express Trail 50 and 100 Milers in Utah. He's the author of multiple books, including his most recent, which is the Grand Canyon Rim to Rim History. We'll talk about that tonight. And probably most notably, and as soon as he talks, if you listen, you'll recognize it, the host of the Ultra Running History podcast. With that, Davey Crockett, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. We'd be missing if we didn't kind of start with your personal running history. You sent us some information, started running in your mid 40s in 2004. You specialized in the 100 mile distances, which is we've already said you were the 15th person to do 100 of those. You did that in 2018. So we did the math. That's an average of over 700s a year to
0: get those first 100. Why? Like, (laughs) really, why? (laughs) It's a good question. How I got started was really a midlife crisis. I was overweight, feeling old, probably 230 pounds, very slow, and thought, this is it. The couch is the best I can do. But I would backpack with a group of friends every year. I would try to get in shape for those backpack trips about two weeks before. I'd run up and down my street. And of course, that doesn't work very well. I would always be the slowest and something happened in 2002, I decided to climb the most popular mountain here in Utah, which is Mount Timpanogos. And I did that to get in shape. It took me 10 hour round trip uh, to do it. And uh, college students were making fun of me, how slow I was going. They called me the tortoise because I just kept going, uh, I didn't take rest, uh, but it was really slow. And I was very offended by that, and and that's good. I went on my backpack trip in the Wind Rivers in Wyoming and did pretty good. And I came back that next weekend and decided to go right up that mountain again. And I was stunned that I could do it in about half the time. So something clicked in my mind. I said, I, I need to get in shape. So my path is not traditional. I didn't do marathons. I didn't do 5Ks. I did fast packing, long distance hiking. I had no idea that ultra running existed. It took me a couple of years to find it. I then finally f- signed up for my first race in 2004. But 100, 100 milers. <laughs> you still well, haven't told me why. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened was... I was at a family outing and my brother-in-law, who's a nationally ranked triathlete, he said, why don't you go run the Wasatch 100? And I knew nothing about it. I thought it was some crazy guys that ran on pavement up in the mountains. I was half right. They are crazy guys, but it's on trails. And I was so naive. I contacted the race director, said, hey, could I uh, sign up? Of course you can't. You know, there was a lottery and, or, or whatever. I said, go try the Bear 100 in Idaho. It was in Idaho at the time. So I signed up for that, but I'd never run a 50K or a 50 miler before when I signed up. I did try a 50K and a 50 miler, uh, the White River 50 miler up in Washington. I ended up dead last place. I'm very proud of that. I was actually two seconds over the cutoff time, Mm -hmm. but the kind race director gave me (laughs) an official finish. So I went to this Bear 100. I tried to learn. I I did pretty good. I got to mile 87 and experienced my first bonk, my first electrolyte imbalance or calories low or something. And I felt like I was dying. I was in dead last place at that point. Some motorcycles came by and I asked for a ride and finally showed up at the finish and watched people finish. I watched them finish and the thought came to my mind that this was way over my head these guys are supermen. I cannot do this. And so I gave up. I said, no, this is not for me. The 100 mile distance isn't for me. But something happened. I had some mentors and got some advice and I decided it was time to transition from a hiker to a runner. Six months later, signed up for my next 100 miler, the Rocky Raccoon in Texas. And I was delighted that when I finished with a pretty good time for a first timer, I couldn't walk for two weeks, but but you wore that medal. I did. I got that buckle <laughs> and something clicked. Those first years, I didn't finish a lot. I had a bunch of DNFs. It took me a two to three years to really learn how to do them and get my mileage base up. But I learned to love the 100 miler because it goes through the night. It's very peaceful. You don't have to go at a super fast pace. I guess I got addicted to.
2: I'm listening to him describe himself in the early years and knowing who he is now. When you look back, would you have ever believed that you would actually be what you are today? Not just with the accomplishments in actually running, but being a historian of ultra running.
0: No, oh, I didn't know what ultra running was. It's uh, like
2: one decision and everything turned.
0: It did. It was a life-changing point when I decided I was going to get fit. I didn't know I'd do a podcast uh, five years ago. I didn't know I'd be involved with the Hall of Fame. I didn't know anything about ultra running history. All these things evolved as I got deeper involved into the sport. In 2018, you became the 15th person to run 100
1: hundreds. I've heard people talk about ultras in 2004, 2005, 2006. It sounds like it is very different than what we show up today in terms of even just the support and the type of runner, right? Mm. Like, were you... Abnormal in that crazy group,
0: <laughs> you know, were they the talent saying that's the crazy guy in the crazy group? Here in Utah, when I started, there were probably only about two hundred ultra runners, maybe, and most of them just did the wasatch each year. So when I first started on trails, I never saw anybody on trail. If I went on those same trails today, they'd just be packed. In fact, I thought I was inventing a new sport, trail running, <laughs> and the night before, I didn't know other people did it. Now, I didn't do a lot of hundreds in those early years. So while I averaged seven, I was actually doing like 14 a year towards. Wow. Well, that's what I was going
2: to say. Cause when he started, he said he started his first one. He DNF'd it and he waited six months to do his next one. I'm like, he's not doing seven
0: his first year at all. 2005. I think I did two. I went back and did that bear again finish although i quit the sport again after my second hundred because i felt so depressed about it i brought a crew i brought pacers i paid for them i spent a good thousand dollars on the whole thing and what did my crew do is i bought my van to be the crew car well they took a wrong turn and punctured my oil pan and <laughs> left my van out in the middle of nowhere and then told me hey we gotta go home
2: <laughs> oh my
0: gosh I finished that race without anybody. Well, I had a pacer with me and he immediately said, I got to go home. And so I was deserted. I had to go figure out how to get my car towed. I hadn't you know, slept a wink. I had to call my wife to try to travel three, four hours to come pick me up. And so after that hundred, I packed up all my running gear and said, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> I am not going to do this sport anymore. It's, it's not worth it. Uh, that lasted a week. <laughs> <laughs> So after that point, did you start taking crews with you? Most of my hundreds, I don't use a crew or pacers. Uh, The only ones I have are the very local ones, like Wasatch, when I've done it. And I got to a point where I could do them very often. You know, the body adapts. If you're doing high mileage every week, I found I could recover in like three days. I could be out running again. I've done some hundreds within a week or four days of each other and done well at them. there's not really a whole lot of training miles in between, right? Yeah. One of my high mileage years, I think I did 5,000 something. I looked back and I averaged running two and a half days a week to do those 5,000 miles because I did so many hundreds or even higher than hundreds. And my strategy was every weekend, I wanted to try to run at least a 50k So I get up two, three in the morning and try to get a 50 K done before noon. That made a big difference in being able to run hundred miles very often.
1: What about structure and in terms of, was most of your running just easy, enjoyable running or did you put structure around, Hey, today I'm going to, I just feel like running hard hills. So I'm going to go do
0: that. It was mostly enjoyable running. In fact, most of my miles, training miles were at night. I have six kids. They hadn't all left the house yet. And I wanted to be very careful about my life balance there. If I could get my training done before my wife noticed, (laughs) that was good. And so I learned to go without much sleep, four hours or something, get up very early in the morning and go for runs and go do things. But I mean, at times I would try to do some speed work. I dabbled in marathons just for fun was surprised that I was pretty good at it. I I did run Boston and and did pretty good. That wasn't for me. It's always been the longer distances. Trails were it at first, but then I learned that I was actually really good at those fixed time loop races. And I started winning some of those. That was later on, about 2010. We've got a lot of people that are probably
1: targeting their first hundred mile race, either in the near future or, you know, it's off in the distance. But as somebody that's done over a hundred of them, if somebody had two minutes with you and they said, Hey, you know, my training's going well, but I'm going to be running my first hundred
0: mile race. What are the top one, two, three things that you would say? You know, for me, one problem I got into is you know, I would get into races early on and kind of stay with the back of the pack. What I learned pretty quickly is if I stay with the back of the pack, I lower my speed to their speed. you know it chasing cutoffs and have all that stress behind you so a lot of people say well don't start out fast Uh, go at an even pace well yeah you can do that but i would say most of my hundreds i started out fast when i felt good i banked some miles and got ahead of those cutoffs so i didn't have the stress but so that's my way that's not not the best way others will say no take it easy go slow I think the most important thing is concentrate on your fueling, your electrolytes, your calories. If you keep those all in balance, it'll make a big difference, especially later at night. I finally got to a point where I wouldn't be DNFing. I think I had a string of about 30 some hundreds without a DNF. It's so mental. It's figuring out when you really should stop. Things go bad during 100. They always do. They do for all of us. So it's learning how to get through those difficulties, taking a rest or eating something different, changing your fluids. And I finally made a rule is I'm not going to stop unless I am truly injured or the cutoffs get me. And once I had that attitude, I found out that I could finish. That also became bad 100 when I ran on a terrible stress fracture Uh, the whole way to get that 500 mile jacket for finishing the race five times and i did but i had to take a wheelchair at the airport and then i couldn't run for six months so you gotta be wise and but know- you got the jacket i did I yeah. jacket <laughs> so That's when he says was, you know
2: stop only if you have an injury but not unless, unless there's, there's a jacket unless there's a, a jacket <laughs> right.
1: right so when you go into a race What's your general plan for how you're attacking nutrition?
0: 400's usually the first 50, I stay with fluids most of the time. Although at an aid station, I might get a sandwiched jelly sandwich or something like that. For most of my races, I would actually use a diluted insurer. I always have run with handhelds. If I have to suck on something hard, I end up dehydrated. So I'm always sipping as I go along the way with my handhelds. I also use handhelds because i learned that i started falling a lot and if i had my bottles in my hands i wouldn't break my fingers well i want you to know one race when i was only going with one handheld 30 miles in i fell and broke my hand the uh, one that wasn't holding the handheld, yeah. right. <laughs> but, but i finished the race you know that's what's important i, I right. continued on we got to the next aid station. Doctor looked at so Yeah, it looks broken. I said, oh, okay. So he said, "Yeah, oh, you should be okay.
1: We talked about in the intro. Ultra Running History Podcast. And for everybody listening, we're going to talk about a few things. But gosh, you have everything from history of 100 milers, uh, pedestrianism, which we may talk about a little bit. For me, I was very interested in the JFK 50, the kind of origin story there. So you've got that Barkley, if anybody doesn't know, was inspired by a prison break Mm -hmm. you know so there's just so many things but we asked you and all the stuff you've done what's a piece of trail history that you discovered you thought like wow i had no idea and you you kind of sent us a response but what jumps out when we ask you that question
0: i guess what's really started is i felt that a lot of the true ultra runners of the past are being forgotten i wanted to figure out who the old hundred milers were were they running them as often as I was? Uh, were they burning out? Were they getting injured? What could I learn from their career? So I actually did a very long, it became an online book about 70, 80, uh, ultra runners of the seventies through the nineties. Learned a lot from that, that opened my eyes. I was helping a friend put together a podcast. And once I set up her podcast, her website and everything, she said, well, why don't you do one? I go, well, maybe I have some content. And so I dove in and I only had five ideas at the time of what I could do, Uh, but now I just released episode 130 and I have a a long list of further things that I, I could do. So it's been a fun, almost five years. Each article probably uses dozens and dozens of news articles and I pull it together as a story and then script a podcast. I put in sound effects for my own creativity and enjoyment. And lame jokes along the way. A lot of them are some dad jokes, probably. That's to keep my interest if it nobody else's. And then I I also adapt it as a YouTube video documentary. The true, uh, you know, American uh, father of ultra running is Ted Corbett. Ted Corbett in New York in the 50s and the 60s brought ultra running back and was not a very impressive person. I hope people learn about who Ted Corbett was. He was a black man and he started putting together ultras there in the 60s that people started competing in and they went further and further. Most of them are track and road back then. You said that Ted Corbett brought ultra running back. First, Ultrarain was extremely popular in the 1800s. It was called pedestrianism back then, where they were doing hundreds of miles in six-day races. They were doing 100 miles very fast on tracks and could compete with people today. There were over 400 six-day races held in that era. Well over a million people would come and watch them and it was very lucrative. The winners won thousands and thousands of dollars. But that was the heyday of ultra running, it truly really was. 1875 to about 1905. Most people out
2: there listening, if they have not heard of you and heard of your podcast or your website, they're thinking to themselves, I don't know what to do right now because I thought this was all literally starting in the 70s. And you have now jumped from 1970s to this guy, Ted Corbett, in the 50s and 60s, who brought ultra running back. And now you're telling me all the way to the 1800s, there were hundreds of these events, six-day events as well, that were taking place. And we called it pedestrianism. So so what is pedestrianism? Is it different than ultra running? Is it a form of race walking? Is it is it jogging? Is it running? And
0: can you describe like a typical event? The six-day races started walking at first heel toe walking, very defined. But after only a year, the Americans were very good at walking and the Brits were very good at running and couldn't match our walking. And so in around 1878, somewhere around there, they defined new rules called go as you please. And what that is, is you can run, you can walk, you can crawl, you can do whatever. It's just like today. So that's when running really took hold. They first were outdoors, mostly between towns, or they would try to do what was back then called the Barkley match. And it was to do a thousand miles, one mile each hour. So over a month, every hour you would walk a mile and they would do these outdoors, usually in front of some pub where they'd have a half mile back and forth that they would do. And the crowds would come, thousands would come and watch them. And so it's kind of like the last man standing. It's like a backyard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very similar. And that was big in the early 1800s. But then what happened was a man named Edward Payson Weston, very famous. He wanted to try to do 500 miles in six days, and he kept trying and trying and failing and failing, and finally, P.T. Barnum, the circus guy. He decided he would bring Weston and others into his big circus tent in New York City and bring it indoors. Attendees paid 25 cents a day and come and watch these guys walk or run in circles for hours and hours for six days, day and night. And he was brilliant. It caught on. It became the most popular spectator sport in America for a good number of years. For one six day race, you could have 40 to 50,000 people who would come and watch these things in Madison Square Garden. But finally, different cities decided to pass laws against them for various reasons. They thought low lives were involved, corruption was involved because uh, wagering, it was all about wagering. And so people were being bribed and throwing races. And so there's a lot of reasons that it petered out in the early 1900s. That era ultra and kind of faded out after a while in the twenties, 1920s, there was the race across America for two years in the news every day. And the best ultra runners in the world came and participated in that from Los Angeles to New York and then the other direction too. But then what happened was the great depression and world war II and people didn't have the money to put on these races. Most of these ultra runners back then were professionals. They tried and tried to find events, but they dried up. So it was after the war that Ted Corbett, I said, brought it back for America.
2: So you said 40 to 50,000 people would come watch this. It was a spectator sport, the number one spectator sport in the 1800s, you think, in the early 1900s. If I think in terms of a spectator sport... Obviously, we have a lot of forms of entertainment today that kind of keep our attention and distract us yes. right? versus what they had back then, I imagine. What in the world would have been so entertaining for a spectator to watch this?
0: They wanted to see them crash and burn. Literally, they really did. They, they would say after the third day, the runners would go what they call cranky. And the sleep deprivation would take hold the exhaustion would take hold and they would start hallucinating like crazy and doing bizarre really bizarre things out on that track it was fascinating to them but wagering again wagering they would wager on their favorite runner and that would just like football today and the the wagering of all that gets your interest or march madness why is that so popular it's all our brackets right it's the same same kind of thing so back then it was their reality show they would get in fist fights. It was almost like hockey at times. The runners would use certain race tactics that would bother the other runners. And the runner would pass another and they'd sock them in the face. You know? <laughs> I mean, I just so, imagine like after day three, the crowd starts to swell.
2: gets more and more yeah, people yeah. trying to get in. Like, let's go. Let's get, let's oh, yeah. In the,
0: your- the six days, so the last day, a lot of times, boy, they would pack those things. But not only running, but they would have sideshows. So they'd always have bands playing. They would have billiards in the middle of the track to play pool they had to have target shooting all sorts of other events they would have these long beer bars over 100 feet long with like 50 bartenders and and so a lot of it was about getting drunk and (laughs) <laughs> um, but also in Madison Square Garden, it was all about cigar smoking. Uh, the place would be filled so much with smoke that you couldn't even see the other side of the arena <laughs> because it was so full of this smoke. So they, they really ran into some weird, I mean, I wish i could go back in time and watch one of these events, but what was fascinating is they were so popular that the New York Times, almost a full page would be all the details about one of these races when you started talking about the distances that were being run in
1: the six mile races and the world records for like the hundred mile distances, it was like, hold on. There's not as much of a disparity between what was being done back then to what's being done now. And I just would have assumed with all the technological advances and, you know, Hey, we've got this thing and we've really come far. And I realized they were running just over 13 hour, hundred miles then We haven't made that much of a stride, right? And I think we were looking at it this morning, the six day record from like the early 1900s was like 620 something. And I think today it's 640. So either way, it's about a 20 something mile difference. And I thought, oh my gosh, I was shocked by it. And I think most people would be to, to realize just how far these people were pushing themselves.
0: Conditions were definitely different. I mean, they were running in leather shoes. They were peeling on a lot of tea and beef mutton. Drugs were involved there too, a lot of stimulants. Even with that era, when you read books about it, you come away thinking, oh, there are a couple dozen of these races. And so I very carefully went through thousands of newspaper articles to figure out how many of these races are. And I say about 400 of these six-day races were held during that era, which is staggering how, how many there were I think that's what I respect about what you're
2: doing a lot. The fact that you have decided that you don't want there to be a forgotten history of ultra running and no, it didn't start in the seventies. It didn't start, you know, um, in North American stuff. And so I respect that so much about you because you've kept it from being lost. Um, you've taken a lot of time and effort to do that. And I just think we would be remiss not to recognize the fact that our understanding of it has been so limited because we have really personally probably not invested the time that we would need to, to kind of understand
0: it. I would say every episode I do is a new discovery for me. I've learned as I went. That's what's fun to me is the discovery, piecing a story together, telling it and feeling good about it. We're going to talk about the book for the
1: Grand Canyon Rim to Rim History. You told us that many of your miles have been logged in the Grand Canyon. It's one of your favorite places to run. Tell us kind of what made you write this book who would you have in mind when you wrote it? Let's let's dive into the book real quick.
0: The audience that I have is runners or hikers who want to go across the Grand Canyon and back. When I started, I think my first time I went to the Grand Canyon was in 2005. Just fell in love with it. I just I couldn't believe it. And at the time, I think I only saw three others that day that were doing the same thing. But now, the last time I did it, I would say I saw five to 600 doing rim-to-rims. It was like a crowded freeway that day. And so what's happened over the years, it's popular, but so many people are kind of abusing the trails and not respecting the canyon. Some of the backpackers don't like us <laughs> because we're rude. We run by them and make them stop. And people are running by things they have no idea. They have no idea how these trails were created. They have no idea who sacrificed even lives. There have been people who have died that were creating these trails for us. And so there's a rich history in that inner canyon of the bridges, the water pipeline, everything that was there. They were doing crossings, you know, as early as the 1900. And it's just fascinating to read the accounts that were left in these newspapers again of people who would do it way back then and would see the same things that we see today and have a deep appreciation for it. So the book is full of stories is this things that I've discovered and found that are just fun to read about. I had a great time putting it together. Yeah,
2: I have a friend who's going to be doing Rim to Rim. I think it's this September. And I've recommended the book because I, I think um, he and his wife are approaching it as if, well, you know, it's the Grand Canyon. It's always been yeah. there. It's a trail that's always there. I'm like, maybe there's more to the story there's of the fact that it's always been there than
0: you know. And so um, I appreciate That's I the idea. Together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because some people treat it kind of like Disneyland. You know, it's an attraction. (laughs) Let's go to the Disneyland and run across it. No, there's so much history, not only from Europeans, but also the Native Americans. Hopefully now, if they've read the book, as they go along the way, they'll remember, oh yes, this is where this happened. This is where the plane back in the 1920s landed down in the Inner Canyon as a stunt. All these funny things that happen. This is where a guy rode his bicycle across, and all, all these things that happen that I've I've uncovered and found about. You see these buried pipelines along the way. Most people, oh, there's a pipe there. They don't understand mm-hmm. why it's there and how important it is that the South Rim has no water. There's no wells there. The water goes down into the ground and falls into the canyon. Years before, they had to bring in water by train for the people that were living there. So they had to create this pipeline from the North Rim, a little deep in the canyon on the north side up to the South Rim. And putting together that pipeline, seven people lost their lives putting it together. Helicopter crashes and all sorts of things happened that I put in my book. So you can thank a lot of these people and learn who they were. Now, both my parents grew up in Arizona. And so I grew up taking
1: the train. Is it Williams, Arizona? That's Williams. Yep. Yeah. So I took that train several times to the Grand Canyon. I've seen the Grand Canyon. I've never actually been down into the Grand Canyon. I didn't, you know, it's like, I just almost like you said, it's like, oh, an amusement. I'm used to going to Disneyland. There's a train. Hey, there's this train that goes from Williams to the Grand Canyon. Now I'm recognizing as an adult listening to your stuff, so like, oh, wow, that was actually, you know, a train. That's how people originally got to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. There's so much history there, but it's just an important part of history and you capture it so well. So, you yeah. know,
0: another fascinating point people don't understand is there used to be races, ultras <laughs> in the Grand Canyon from 1970 to 1993. There were rim to rims or rim to rim to rims, races that were held each year. Everybody's forgotten Thankfully, they aren't held anymore. The National Park Service won't allow them, but I document those as people were setting fastest known times clear back in the 60s and 70s.
1: Before we go, where people can find you, you're on Instagram, it's at UltraCrockett, and we talked about ultrarunninghistory.com. So for everybody listening, I've been poking around in there. So that's where you house the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame. So there's some pretty fascinating information there. You've got your podcast episodes. Uh, obviously you can find that on Spotify and Apple and everywhere else as well. You can get his books on Amazon. You can get the books. This one and another one. Yep. Where I was pretty blown away is your history links and your website. It is an unbelievable amount of content, which I kind of actually laughed earlier when you said, well, maybe I have some content, right? I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, I didn't have a lot back then. (laughs) (laughs) There is so much. I mean, you have history of hundred milers. You've got by different races, you've got biographies by name of people, you've got history by time errors and decades. So for everybody listening, if you want to start digging into this stuff, just poke around that website for a while. And I think you'll be absolutely fascinated by what Davies put together. And gosh, man, I'm, I'm just so
2: impressed. I would say that, you know, from somebody in 2004, who are 2002 and 2003, that was overweight, um, and decided you were going to do your first ultra in 2004, you have made an indelible mark on really the sport that I think uh, makes you to some degree, your own legend, right? You're, you're like, um, oh, it's like, I know it's super weird to say that to somebody. I'm not a legend. But you carry a legacy for the sport that is unparalleled from a lot of people in the amount of work and time you spent in investing in it no thanks
0: i mean you know my main motivation is i just it fascinates me i love doing it and i I love helping people it's
1: clear i mean a hundred hundreds right you've been showing up for a long time not only that but the amount of content and the amount of the work that you're doing you said you're slowing down but with the books you're talking about releasing you must work way faster than i do right because uh it's just hard <laughs> hard to imagine that much but i just want to say thank you for your time man we've we've really enjoyed
0: oh thanks for having me with that this is davy crockett and this is the ultra running history podcast i hope you run fast and far enjoy life get outdoors And most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.